Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, ad-free, listener-supported podcast. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everyone. Uh, We all have our biases about history, and when we say certain things, we imagine certain things because of those biases. So when I think of maritime history, for instance, I immediately think of the European Age of Sail. I think of things like Columbus and Pizarro and Cortez and all of that good stuff, all of that really good, terrible stuff. Um, But that is by no means the entire picture. Uh, Lots of other folks in other parts of the world were also building very large ships and doing very impressive feats of boat activity. And in today's episode, I talked to Eric Taliacozzo, who is a Cornell history professor, about his new book, In Asian Waters, and we got into Asian maritime history. We talked about exploration and trade and piracy and religion, uh, all sorts of things. I found it fascinating. I really hope you enjoyed the interview. One thing before we begin, uh, when I recorded this interview, I had COVID-19. So (laughs) if I sound a little bit um, hoarse or funny to you um, on the audio, uh, that is why there was an unpleasant and terrible disease inside of me. Uh, If you haven't gotten COVID-19, I don't recommend it. So I really hope that you're all being safe. Yeah, get vaccinated, get boosted, try to avoid this thing, all that. But anyway, here's Eric Taliacozzo. Eric Taliacozzo, hello. Hello. Hey, uh, so I wanted to start with um, just you introducing yourself. Um, who are you? What, it's your, what are your bona fides? And how did you get interested in this topic? Thanks, Joe. Uh, Well, I'm a professor of history at Cornell University. Um, I work on Southeast Asian history, but uh, kind of Southeast Asia uh, broadly translated across maritime worlds. So reaching reaching, uh, west towards the Indian Ocean and reaching north towards the South China Sea. And uh, yeah, I've been teaching here for quite a while and uh, teach courses on Southeast Asian history, on material culture history, uh, on Islam, uh, on a few other topics. Uh, so that's more or less what I do. And I want to start with what is going to sound like an extremely basic question, but what is Asia? Um, I realize that that might sound really self-evident, but it can include or exclude a lot of different things. Um, when you're talking about Asia in your work, does that include things like Indonesia or Polynesia or, or Australia? Um, given how sometimes those diasporas work, that could even include Madagascar. Um, how, how do you define that region? Yeah, thanks. Uh, no, I think that's a very fair question. And uh, f- for the purposes of this book, uh, Asia stretches across a, a really very large geography. Uh, it goes all the way out to the East African coast. I mean, what what is often called the Swahili world, uh, that is to say, uh, coastal northern Mozambique, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia. None of these places are Asia, of course. This is uh, absolutely Africa. But uh, for the purpose of this book, they are these African places are part of this Asian maritime world and vice versa, too. Of course, uh, this Asian maritime world is part of East Africa. 
and yeah, Madagascar also figures in the book uh, because of co connections across the middle latitudes of the Indian Ocean with Indonesian seafarers, something like 1500 years ago, which is talked about in one of the initial chapters. But if you were moving up the East African coast from, from uh, Mozambique north, so again, I mentioned these coastal countries and Swahili civilization, eventually you're getting to the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf uh, and the, the Arabian Peninsula in between them, uh, and then to South Asia, the Indian subcontinent, uh, the 11 modern nation states that make up Southeast Asia, and then finally up through East Asia, coastal China, Korea, Japan, even uh, small parts of Pacific Russia are mentioned in the book. So, uh, and you asked about Oceania. Yeah, so limited parts of Melanesia, that is to say the island groups that are closest to Asia, uh, but are part of Oceania now in terms of categorizing these places. These are the first islands outside of Asia as you push east into the Pacific. But these are part part of this world too, as I try to talk about uh, Chinese merchants that, that actually moved into these spaces historically as well. And yes, finally, even Northern Australia uh, is mentioned for a bit in the book with uh, the visits of Indonesian sailors coming to Northern Australia looking for uh, edible sea cucumbers. So it's a very, very large, fluid uh, geography that, that counts as Asia or parts of Asia in this book. And I should also ask, uh, what time period does your, book, um, does your book concern? Yeah, the book is, again, kind of flexible in that respect. I didn't want to just have some kind of hard and fast date, but it's more or less the last 500 years or so, the last half millennium. But there are parts of the book that stretch further back and there are parts of the book that are more recent. Um, so kind of time is, uh, time is fluid just, just in the same way that geography is fluid in this book, because I'm more interested in themes, uh, which is what the chapters are organized around, rather than trying to tell a, a kind of chronological history from from you know decade to decade to decade until we come up to the present yeah i appreciated that the book is not a the, the book is not a like timeline <laughs> it does not right. go from you know well we're going to start at the dawn of this age and continue on for the next couple of centuries sampling each geographic area um each chapter was pretty focused um speaking of which you have an entire chapter that focuses on Vietnam in particular. Um, why did you choose Vietnam as your as one of your like marquee sort of focus chapters? Why zoom in on it? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so that's the third chapter in the book, and I organized the chapters in dyads so that each of the two chapters in a section um, try to look at some of the same ideas, but in different ways. So the chapter right before that is, is about China and Africa and looks mm -hmm. at the two poles of study that are, that are basically the geographic poles of the book and looks at that long distance trade and um, contact that's moving between the two places. So I wanted to have a chapter that did exactly the opposite, which was instead of focusing on two far-flung poles that are, that are separated by a lot of distance, I focused on one place and looked at how trade and contact moved out uh, and into that place over time. So uh, that was really what I was trying to do by that. And um, Vietnam is interesting in this sense too, because it's not very often included in these maritime worlds. There are scholars who have written about maritime Vietnam and, and, and done really great job on that. But Vietnam 
tends to be less a part of those kind of maritime worlds than uh, a lot of other places in Southeast Asia. So I thought it would be interesting to take a place that doesn't often get a lot of attention as part of these larger maritime routes and try to show the opposite of what goes on in the chapter before it. So instead of concentrating on those long distance threads to kind of try to look at one particular place and ask how the threads uh, come in and out of that particular locale. And and what did you find when you uh, drilled down into it? When you were uh, writing that Vietnam chapter, was there anything that um, stood out for you or surprised you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Vietnam was m- much more involved in, in a lot of this uh, trade than I thought originally it was going to be. And I should say from the outset that I'm not uh, a Vietnamese speaker. Um, so uh, the kinds of sources that I can use are limited to some extent. When you write a big book like this with using very large geographies, you're never going to, no one person is going to be able to have all of the languages on hold. So I'm really dependent on uh, others and what they have written before me and try to lean heavily on other scholars. But I think one of the things that came out of that was was just realizing that Vietnam was more a part of these roots than I, than I certainly had thought. And, um, you know, one of the ways to get to that, actually, interestingly enough, scholars who work on Vietnam tend to learn French because that's the most important colonial language for archives and uh, things like this. But actually, I found that one of the languages that was very helpful in thinking about this was Dutch, because uh, the Dutch were in Vietnam in parts of the 17th century, and they were there explicitly for trade, not to try to colonize uh, Vietnam. So they left very good uh, records uh, about the things that were moving in and out of Vietnam. And uh, by kind of trying to put some of these different things together, what other scholars had written, what uh, some of the Dutch materials as well about trade you start to get a picture that Vietnam was definitely more involved in this kind of maritime trade than than I at least initially had had thought. I noticed that in the Vietnam chapter about the Dutch, um, they seem to be, uh, I don't want to totally focus on European traders here, because I feel like lots of other, you know, histories about, you know, sale and trade and all that focus on them quite a bit. But they always, they seem to have been the earliest Europeans to be actually um, active in a lot of these areas. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that correct? Uh, not the earliest. Uh, the okay. Portuguese and the Spanish came before them, but they were um, they were among those who had the best records in the century right after what we call the Iberian century, the 16th century. When the Dutch came through, started to come through in the 17th century, um, they really had very, very good record keeping. Mm-hmm. So um, the kinds of materials that are used to write these kinds of mercantile histories of trade and contact uh, are particularly particularly good for the Dutch. So if you want to if you want to write a world history in the 17th century, you absolutely need to learn Dutch. Uh, that's how important the Dutch were in connecting these various places, not just in Asia but also uh, in in the in the Americas as well. Oh yeah, because you said the Portuguese, and you just reminded me. Isn't Formosa, which is one of like terms for Taiwan, isn't that a Portuguese term? Yeah, that's right. It means beautiful and uh, beautiful yeah. island, and uh, and it is. It's 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 a really beautiful uh, uh, beautiful place. I actually married into uh, Taiwanese society, so I go back to Taiwan uh, almost every year with my family. My both my kids were born there as well, and uh, it is an absolutely beautiful place. It is um, my. Uh... My wife's family, uh, her oh. her mother is from Taiwan. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Anyway, 
Um, maybe this is like too big of a question here, but it's something that I was thinking about while reading the book. When you get into, you know, histories of like European sail and reading this book, I couldn't help but think about, you know, histories of transatlantic trade and colonialism and all of that, that inevitably goes into, uh, the history of what we now call, you know, mercantilism and also later on capitalism. Uh, were there similar economic patterns in Asia? Would the kind did the kind of like trade and market activity and economic activity that was present in this time in this place did it end up looking like the kind of mercantilism and capitalism that we associate with Europe and the European adjacent world in that same time period? Yeah, uh, that's a very good question, Joe. Um, I I think the answer to that uh, in good historical fashion would be yes and no. Um, there are. Okay. <laughs> there are definitely some similar processes at work there. And um, I have some discussion in the book about Adam Smith and Karl Marx and how they saw processes of mercantilism phasing towards capitalism in places like the Indian Ocean, uh, mm-hmm. right in front of their eyes in the in the late 18th and in the mid-19th century, uh, respectively. Uh, one of the differences, I would say, though, is that you know, in in the especially in the Indian Ocean, there were many indigenous actors trading and traveling and kind of uh, traversing this space uh, before Europeans ever showed up, and and that is really important because that was quite different on an oceanic scale than, for example, the Atlantic, where we know that there were Mesoamerican peoples uh, in in what's today Central America or or the Incas in South America that that knew their way around the coasts. But these were not people that were making transoceanic voyages, and that that was something that was happening in the Indian Ocean. So, thinking about the phasing of mercantilism towards capitalism is something that I think would have uh, taken place on a planetary scale to some extent, but it would have looked quite a bit different in a place like the Indian Ocean than it would have looked in the Atlantic. Yeah, when you mention um, both Smith and Marx writing about this, uh, like. My my ears perked up metaphorically while in that chapter. Like, what what did they have to say about it? Yeah, I mean, uh, interestingly, I think both of them were were somewhat aghast at some of the some of the stuff that they saw. Particularly, Marx um, uh, was not quite so positive that the changes that were coming about. I mean, England. A lot of the mantra from England was that this kind of trade was going to benefit all of mankind, and you know what was good for England was going to be good for everyone else since England was so good at trade uh, and shipping and contact uh, across the oceans. Marx was certainly uh, less sure of that and felt that these kind of processes of the the actual uh, changing of mercantilism more towards a capitalist model was in the end uh, enslaving people. And just because uh, England or Europeans were better at this did not mean it was going to be better for for uh, other people in the world. So uh, there definitely were uh, different takes on this, and you can read other important uh, kind of philosophers or intellectuals of exchange at this time and, and see different opinions. But um, uh, particularly, Marx was was not so sanguine about what these changes might mean for other human beings. So again, um, I feel a little bad about this because again, I'm just using my like existing sort of Amerocentric, Eurocentric kind of point of reference when reading your work. But also I think of like large ocean going vessels during this time period. And the thing that I 
immediately think of is slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. Was there anything at all like that in um, like the Asiatic maritime world? Yes, uh, there was slavery in the Indian Ocean, for sure. Uh, it was not anywhere on the same scale as what happened with the so-called Middle Passage of the Atlantic, you know, where, where we're talking about tens of millions of Africans uh, over hundreds of years being brought forcibly against their will and in the absolute worst kinds of conditions to the New World. Um, you know, in the United States, we're most famous with that history in the American South and through the growing of cotton and other crops. But of course, lot, many, many, many millions of Africans also went to the Caribbean. And I believe actually that the highest number of Africans were brought to Brazil. Um, so this was on a scale that was not uh, parallel to what was going on in the Indian Ocean. But there was slavery in Asia and there was slavering from East Africa to the Middle East, for example. Um, a lot of it, it was on much smaller lines, but still uh, on a on a scale large enough to make a real difference to these societies. Um, and a lot of it was gendered. I mean, uh, males often went into service um, in the Middle East as soldiers and soldiery. Uh, uh, so we see a lot of that over the years and women tended to go into the harem and places like this uh, as well. So, and of course we should say too that Europeans participated in this. Some of this predated uh, Europeans uh, coming to the region, but Euro Europeans very much participated in the slave trade until it gradually over the course of the 19th century was uh, outlawed. Um, but it, it, it also depends on what you define as slaves and, and slavery. Uh, there's, a, there's quite a large literature about this. For example, a scholar, Anthony Reed, who's written you know, very interesting and important work about what debt bondage meant in Southeast Asian contexts and whether this is comparable to slavery in the Atlantic world. And they are not, they are not the same things. Mm -hmm. Was the slavery often uh, racialized like it was uh, in the Americas? Yes, to some extent. Uh, uh, certainly it was racialized. But one thing that uh, also was the case that was that, that a lot of these slaves were Muslims who were coming from East Africa, the Swahili civilization for the most part was Muslim and the receiving uh, uh, countries in the Middle East were often Muslim as well. So that made a, a, a big difference whether the slave, uh, whether he or herself was going to be a Muslim as opposed to someone who was not Muslim and then would be treated differently by Islamic law. So that was really uh, an important difference. On a completely different note, um, I also want to ask about, you know, other, God, feels weird to talk about enslaved people as products, but other products, other items that were um, common here. Would we think about um, East Asian trade in this time period? There are a few specific um, consumer products that come to mind. Um, I think of ceramics, uh, silk, and spices. Uh, how did those things become so closely associated uh, with this part of the world and with uh, exports from this part of the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, definitely, these are all important uh, commodities and they are uh, they become engines of trade, of, at least of transcontinental trade uh, after a time. And it's fascinating, um, you know, that... As you say, to Westerners, the, these kinds of commodities were particularly fascinating to Westerners because they didn't have them, right? Uh, they did not have the ability to make high, 
high fire ceramics. Uh, they did not have these spices uh, growing naturally in Europe that grew in places like India and Indonesia, the two largest uh, kind of source places for uh, spices that came to Europe. So there is a long history, of course, of internal Asian trade too, in much more prosaic items than ceramics and silks and spices. And these probably would have been the kind of engines of a lot of regional trade in places like South Asia, Southeast Asia, and East Asia uh, individually. So these would be products like rice or dried fish or salt. Uh, these are much more prosaic things, but they would have been uh, pushed in very, very large quantities. And ceramics and silk and spices, these kinds of things become much more important in the middle, I would say the middle centuries of the second millennium CE, uh, as the world starts to be seamed together more through trade. So, you know, the I would say the, the beginnings of, of my book mostly are taking place there, although again, there are parts that reach back further in time and parts that come closer to the present. But the ceramics, silk, and spices tend to be more important in, in that middle period. And, you know, we can think of other things too that are helping in this knitting together of the world. So coffee and tea, for example, stimulants become uh, very important uh, in moving through different parts of what used to be called the old world. Uh, we don't really call it that anymore, or the old world in the new world, but on the kind of Eurasian continent. And we could think of, you know, the radials of coffee, for example, which are indigenous to Ethiopia and which seem to have been first kind of cultivated and sold for export in Yemen just across the Red Sea. But we can actually trace how coffee moved around the rim of the Indian Ocean. We have good dates for a lot of the places uh, that coffee plants eventually came to and uh, moved around through the 17th and 18th centuries and eventually became popular in places like Europe in the salons of the of the Enlightenment. Or tea, uh, thinking about tea, you know, tea was really quite an elite drink until uh, the last third of the 18th century when something called the commutation tax in the in the 1780s brought the tax down enormously on tea and it starts to become a drink of the working class in, in factories in Europe because it's combined with sugar and the combination of this stimulant and the sugar mimics nourishment. Uh, and that is, you know, one of the things scholars feel that really powered the industrial revolution in places like England uh, was the fact that factory owners could give their workers tea and sugar rather than giving them uh, uh, square meals, which cost more money. And this mimicked nourishment and allowed factories to 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 begin to work on a much larger scale. So when we when you talk about these commodities, Joe, they, these are really important. They have they end up having global importance, uh, uh, not just in Asia but in other places too. Uh, now I'm thinking about uh, working at a 19th century fac factory just powered by tea and sugar. Yeah, yeah, seems less than great. Um, yeah, but what? <laughs> One of the things that's interesting, though, one of the things I also want to ask you about, and um, I feel like I have to ask this question because this is a guy that um, I think a lot of, you know, the type of people who listen to history podcast, hi listeners, uh, will have heard of and are probably wondering why we haven't mentioned him yet. And that's uh, Zhang He or Zhang He. Am I saying his <laughs> name right? Zhang uh, He. Zhang He. Zhang um, He's probably the the major uh, Chinese admiral 
that people are going to be familiar with. And I'm wondering, could you get into his career a bit? Um, what did it entail? And also, um, is he representative of a of something larger than himself? Like we talk about, I think when he's talked about oftentimes, like it's as if this one guy with this extraordinary career who had these giant ships that went all over the place. Um, but are we kind of like over-determining what he did? Was he part of a like larger like a larger trend that also included like other folks or does he kind of like quote unquote deserve his reputation as like the, you know, big Chinese explorer that everyone's, everyone's familiar with. Yeah. It's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, he, I would say he is not emblematic of the larger history of uh, Chinese uh, moving out to the rest of the world because it's a, it's a really quite a singular episode. There, there is some material in my book about him it's a fairly well-known story, as as you've said. Um, he w- was the admiral of seven voyages that left Ch- the, the coast of China between 1405 and 1433. And um, what's what I think is really most interesting about this is is actually, you know, for a long time there was an interpretation that these voyages were really just about flying the flag of the new Ming Dynasty. Uh, uh, which had which had set up after 1368, after the Mongols had been in China for about a century, and that that's what all this was. But I discuss in one of the chapters some of the new interpretations that have been coming out, which are less, uh, which believe less that this was just about flying the flag. That believe this might have been about other things as well, and I find that very interesting. Um, all of the seven voyages got to Southeast Asia. And several of them went further into the Indian Ocean, with at least one of them getting to East Africa and, and brought back famously a giraffe, which was uh, painted in the Chinese court in 1415. And we still have that painting. So, but you, you can imagine, you know, uh, what it must have been like for a, you know, an African, an East African person, someone belonging to these kind of Swahili coastal civilization, which was already very sophisticated, by the way. I mean, these were people living in coralite cities on the coast of East Africa across those several countries I mentioned earlier in the podcast that were very literate, uh, that were Muslim and in conversation with larger parts of the Islamic world. But just waking up one morning 600 years ago and seeing scores upon scores of these you know, really large ships uh, uh, on the horizon, and, and they had never seen this before. So I think Zheng He is important. I don't think he's emblematic that much of larger history of voyaging, of Chinese voyaging, because this was the most outsized voyage that happened in, that, that we know about in Chinese history. Um, but it it is certainly an important moment, and it, it is part of what knitted the world together over the last five to 600 years, as I said. And it's important, of course, also to note that this is before the European voyages of discovery. And that's important uh, too, because it destabilizes this narrative that somehow the West were the the only ones uh, learning how to move across uh, oceanic spaces. The Chinese were at, at least as capable of doing that and before Europeans were. Yeah, I ask because I think maybe I have a somewhat contrarian impulse where when there is a singular, you know, person or event to think. Well, how singular was this actually? Um, 
how how representative was this of like a larger trend and this is just the one part of it that we're focusing on but your answer surprises me because you seem to be saying like yes this was genuinely singular and significant and i yeah that is not really what i suspect from these types of things i wanted to touch on something else that you mentioned you talked about the experience of folks on the swahili coast of seeing these you know, gigantic Chinese ships over the horizon. And I wanted to ask, what was it like for them? Mm -hmm. Um, If you were on the receiving end, that seems like maybe an awkward way to put it. Uh, But if you were on the receiving end of seeing an Asian maritime power uh, like China with this treasure fleet, uh, would it have been just a benign interaction or would it be like, the Native Americans encounter with somebody like Columbus or Cortez? How how did it, would it generally go? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and, you know, as far as we know, I, I do not know of enormous amounts of violence that accompanied the Zheng He expeditions. Um, uh, we don't have very good records. We, we have very limited records because a lot of the records about the voyages were destroyed in a fire uh, and destroyed uh, uh, purposely, in, in fact, um, some decades after the voyages went. So, um, so we don't know an enormous amount about that question. Uh, I think thinking about this question of first contact and kind of, you know, comparing it to the West and the, the, uh, with European ships coming to the Americas. I mean, it's, it's really a different thing to some extent because the Colombian ships that sailed across the Atlantic in 1492, the, this was the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, these were really nowhere near as grand in size. First of all, there's only three ships, whereas we know scores upon scores of ships went with the Zheng He expeditions. So that's really quite different. Uh, and even the subsequent European ships that came to the Americas to, that landed in places like Plymouth in, in Massachusetts or um, in Virginia, the landings of English ships, northern European ships, these were also much, much smaller, both in terms of the, the number of ships and the actual ships that are coming. So the Zheng He moment, what we can call the Zheng He moment, is special in that. It, it was designed, I think, the voyages to awe. And also, if we think of kind of the shock and awe campaign of U.S. uh, bombings in Iraq or something like this, it it was about sending a message, not just uh, accomplishing a strategic goal. It was about sending a message, I think, uh, that this is a far more powerful entity than the ones that were being dealt with on the ground. And... uh, what is interesting to me is is not to say that there was no violence accompanying these Zheng He expeditions, because uh, I, I think that's not really the right, uh, we don't really know enough about that. What I would say is, you know, was this something that was happening over a long period of time again and again? And it, it, it wasn't. It was pretty unique. It happened at this scale only once. So it was singular to some extent. What I do find fascinating is how the historiography has changed uh, over the last 10, 10, 15 years about the Zheng He expeditions as China has become a much more important uh, power in Asia. So some of the old uh, kind of descriptions of China and these expeditions as being entirely benign have changed. And uh, I, I think that's really worth worth looking at and uh, that that these explanations have changed over time. Uh, I also want to ask about piracy. Um mm-hmm. 
Because anywhere where you have maritime trade, you're also going to have people who are breaking the rules. And what role did piracy and vice play in the East Asian maritime world during the time period that you read about? Yeah, there was certainly piracy in Asian waters as well. Uh, um, you know, if we move away from, again, in, in the West, I think the most kind of stock images of piracy tend to be, uh, at least in the United States, kind of ideas of Caribbean piracy um, with some of the very colorful characters that have appeared historically. Uh, there was certainly piracy in Asia too, some of which was quite brutal, uh, some of which was along religious lines. Uh, in other words, kind of Catholicism and Islam um, who had a, a kind of long adversarial relationship in the Mediterranean, in and around the Mediterranean, we see that kind of continued to some extent out in Asian waters. Um, uh, but we also see other examples of piracy that have nothing to do with with kind of Europe or Islam. Uh, for example, confederations of, of pirates that existed in northern Vietnam and southern China in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Uh, Chang Sao and uh, some of these uh, kind of people, these very, very organized pirate confederations um, that were first brought to light by a scholar, D uh, Diane Murray, in her fantastic book, Pirates of the South China Coast. Uh, this was a, at a time of great instability in, in Vietnam called the Taeson Uprisings, and relations with China at that point were very uh, ambiguous. But what I would say in many of these cases is that piracy, what we term piracy under one kind of rubric, was actually very opportunistic. Uh, a lot of ships were sometimes traders and sometimes piratical. We have good examples of that among, for example, the Bugis people in Indonesia from Sulawesi. That's where the term the boogeyman is going to come get you, where these terrified Western uh, traders who were worried about the boogies and boogies became boogeyman. Um, but we should also, to be totally fair, kind of see Europeans as, as pirates too. A, a lot of the sources we have on this kind of thing are European sources. So somehow the other in, in quotes is always the pirate, but the Europeans were were definitely piratical when it, it worked to their advantages too. And we can see that in numerous contexts, but also with, uh, you know, in the 16th and 17th centuries, the Portuguese had something called the Carthage system in the Indian Ocean, which is, can kind of loosely be translated as the passport system that people traveling on the seas had to have documents that were acceptable to the Portuguese to move things back and forth. And no one had ever needed that before. And if they didn't have the documents that the Portuguese wanted, uh, those ships were considered to be fair game. Uh, so, you know, it really it, it really matters who who is defining who is the pirate here. I, I have no trouble believing at all that Europeans were seen and uh, entirely justifiably so as piratical by lots of local peoples uh, in Asia and Africa uh, during this during these first centuries of um, uh, contact, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Um, so that, that certainly should be part of our narrative as well. That is entirely fair. Um, and I, I know that we are a bit, op well, this is a podcast, we can go <laughs> as long as we like, but I try to keep these interviews like somewhat economical, but I I want to do my due diligence and also ask you about the role of religion in um, maritime activity during this time period. Uh, would you say that spreading religion was a driving force of a lot of maritime activity, or was it more of a byproduct of a lot of the interaction you talk about it? Or is that reductive to think of it as like one or the other? 
Um, yeah, I do. I do think it's a bit reductive. It, it certainly doesn't need to be one or the other. They were mutually reinforcing to some extent. Um, a lot of the Iberian ships that came out in the 16th century uh, and into the 17th century thought these were Catholic ships coming from Spain and Portugal. You know, the, the, the kind of normative narrative about this is that Iberians and Catholics were, were more interested in conversion than Northern Europeans. So people like the Dutch and the English who were tended to be Protestant or Anglican or what, you know, from different, uh, having espousing different versions of Christianity and were less interested in converting local people and more interested in making money. Uh, but I do think that's reductive. Uh, there were certainly the Iberians were very interested in making money. And to some extent, uh, Northern Europeans were interested in converting people too. And we see that in various parts of Asia with people who converted to uh, Northern European versions of Christianity. Uh, so I do think it's too black and white to say one is the reason for the other. Um, I have uh, uh, one section of the book with two chapters that discuss religion it's called Religion on the Tides. And uh, one is looking at the Bay of Bengal and looks at how Hinduism and Buddhism moved between places like Eastern India and Sri Lanka to parts of Southeast Asia. And again, that's a, li that's a bit earlier for the most part than other parts of the book. So it's a, it's a little bit earlier. And then uh, a second chapter deals with Islam and Christianity. But again, just as with the Vietnam example and the China-Africa chapters, I try to do it uh, in this similar way, one one that looks at the poles, which in this in the first case was India and Southeast Asia, the other that looks at one place and asks how these patterns spin out from one locale. And the locale I chose for that was a city called Zamboanga that I spent some time in in Mindanao, the southern Philippines. Uh, and this is a place where Islam and Christianity have mixed in very interesting ways for several hundred years. And uh, I tried to look at some of those processes and how they're interlinked with various other political, economic, uh, and religious processes at the same time. One last big question for you. Um, in what ways are contemporary maritime trade routes, infrastructure, and practices the descendants of what you've written about? And in what ways are they more radical breaks from it? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question to end on. I mean, I think Parts of these worlds that are described in the book are all around us in different ways. Um, you know, just to give two examples that I already spoke about coffee and tea, these stimulants that are just such a normal part of our lives for so many people on the planet. I mean, coffee and tea come from particular places, and yet they are global now in their impact and the, the number of people that, that drink these stimulants on a daily uh, uh, basis. Um, there's other examples that you can take of this. For example, Thai curry, you know, just would be another example. I think we're all so used to the idea of, do you want, you know, green curry or red curry or all these things that we think of as being quintessentially Thai. But of course, these chili peppers, these peppers didn't, didn't exist in, 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 in Asia until after the Colombian exchanges between the, the, the so-called new world and the old world. Again, those are not good terms anymore to use, but the, the American hemisphere, uh, uh, the hemisphere of the Americas, let's say, and uh, Africa and Eurasia. So that is a good example as well, that something we think of as quintessentially Thai uh, actually has a much more recent history because there simply were no uh, chilies to be, to be able to make something like uh, Thai chili until much later. Um, other examples of this would be call centers. I mean, I think about 
Uh, I mentioned this in the book, but you know, if you're if you're getting a call center in India or in the Philippines, which we often do if you need to call for something, you're you're getting these countries for a region uh, a reason, and one of those reasons is that these are both um, much cheaper places to hire workers for these big companies. But it's also because of English, right? Um, and English was one of the many lingua francas that developed along these Asian trade routes. There were others before English, some of them Asian, some of them eventually European. But English was the last in a succession of languages over these several centuries. And it really became important in places like India and the Philippines. And we can see how that fits, fits into our global economy uh, right now. But maybe the last example I can give of this beyond commodities like coffee, tea, chili peppers, beyond technologies or languages uh, like uh, call centers or English being spoken uh, on the phone would be just the movement of people themselves thinking about immigration and sojourning and what we think of as cosmopolitan places in the world. So uh, it's not just New York City and London that are cosmopolitan, but it's Mumbai it's Sydney, it's Hong Kong. Uh, these are very, very cosmopolitan cities with communities from many different countries uh, represented in these populations. And they're part of the legacy of these trades as well. And uh, you feel that when you walk in any of these cities and uh, go through the neighborhoods. Uh, and that's a that's part, part and parcel of this uh, history of contact over the centuries as well. So I hope that comes across in the book uh, that part of the world we see outside every day is uh, was fashioned in these centuries and in these ways that are described uh, uh, in the pages of of uh, of the book, and that to me at least is is something really just fascinating. It's it's really the past in the present and something that's very much still with us. Excellent, Eric Taliakotso. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you, Joe. Hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, once again, the book is called In Asian Waters. I really enjoyed it and recommend it. As always, we are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. We are on Stitcher. All of the things where you can find podcasts. Give us ratings and reviews. The podcast, as always, is written, produced, and edited by Joe Streckert. That's me. Our website and branding is by Sarah Giffro of Upswept Creative. We are recorded, edited, and everything else in beautiful Portland, Oregon. Thank you all so much for listening. Talk to you next time.